We're going to turn again to Genesis. We'll go to chapter 2. In the last uh, nine weeks, actually ten, because we, we, we paused one week. So over the last ten weeks, we've talked about the book, the chapter of Genesis 1. And we've gone through the sixth, six days of creation. And uh, we've seen some pretty remarkable and amazing things in this uh, part of the Bible. It's the foundation of our entire world. Many things that were done for the very first time are there in Genesis 1. The first blessing ever uh, was given to who? To whom was the first blessing given? You remember, Matt? The, uh, fish and birds. That's right. The fish and the birds were the first ones to whom God said, He blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Well, then he said the same thing to human beings. And last week we talked about being created in the image of God and the significance of that. And the, uh, the end of Genesis chapter 1 holds some very, very significant and important things for mankind. But today we want to look at Genesis chapter 2 and look at the seventh day. This uh, message today is entitled, The Holy Day of Rest. Very, very significant part of the Bible. Before we uh, read the scriptures, let's just ask the Lord to bless this time of study. Lord, as we open up your word and seek to hear what you would want to share with us, I ask you, Lord, to please <clears throat> let your Holy Spirit have control. I pray you keep me from saying anything untrue. And I pray that you would allow the Holy Spirit to help those listening to understand. And Lord, we cannot understand the Word of God without the Spirit of God. And we pray that you would impart His Spirit to us now to give us the grace to understand what you would have to say. We pray that you would help us to receive with humble hearts the things that you want us to hear today. And we thank you for this and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. May God bless his word to our hearts. There are three things that we notice in these three verses. The first is a significant seven. You've maybe heard of the Magnificent Seven, a famous Western film starring Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen. But this is the significant seven. It's a little more important than the Magnificent Seven. If you look at the root word of the word seven, and we're talking about the seventh day. If you look at the root Hebrew word, it's the word Shabbat. And it means to be complete. If you trace it down to the root word, the word for seven is a little bit different than this word, but it's based on a word which is based on a word. And the root word here is Shabbat, and it means to be complete. It has the idea of seven, to seven oneself. If something is completed, it means it's been sevened. In the Hebrew language, if you completed something, it means you sevened it. 
if you were ever to uh, seven yourself, it means that you would to say something seven times. It's like uh, if, if you were to swear, it means that you have sevened yourself. You have said it seven times. They didn't literally say it seven times usually, but that's what it meant. It had the weight of having said it seven times. So if I say, I'm coming over to your house for dinner. I am coming to your house for dinner. I am coming to your house for dinner. That's only three, and you're already convinced. I mean, you're just, okay, I got you. It's easy. Okay, take it easy. If I said it four more times, you would be, that I would be really putting myself out there, and that's basically the idea. You have completely, fully said it. Seven is the number of completion in the Bible. This is the first time that the number seven is mentioned anywhere in the Bible. You're going to find a lot of firsts in Genesis. I mean, it is the first book. Nowhere else does it mention sevens. But sevens show up for the rest of the Bible all over the place. It's a very significant number in the Bible. There were seven lean cows and seven fat cows in Pharaoh's dream that Joseph interpreted. At Joshua and the battle of Jericho, they marched around the city of Jericho seven times on the last day. There are seven days of the Feast of Passover. The consecration of the priests was to last seven days. Every seven years was a year of rest. Also, we've learned a few weeks ago, is called the Shemitah. And after seven Shemitahs, they had the year of Jubilee, which we are currently enjoying now. Jesus said to forgive. uh, See, this is why this is so significant. When Peter said to Jesus, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother if he offends me? Seven times? And see, Peter thought he was being something special because he said, hey, seven, you know, yeah, completely, right? Seven times in a day. And according to their tradition, it was, he was saying seven times for every time someone offends me per day. So if John were to offend me by stubbing my toe, I'd forgive him seven times if he did that in, every, every, in, in a single day, if he did it seven times. The eighth time, I'm holding it against you. But for seven times. And then if you punch me in the arm, I forgive you seven times for that. So it was per offense, per day, per person. Peter thought he was being pretty special seven times, right? Jesus said, no, I say unto you, 70 times seven. So he was kind of like saying, nope, you're way, way off. (laughs) He was saying, you need to completely, completely, absolutely forgive. He was basically saying infinitely, per offense, per day, per person. It was 490 times. If you can get somebody to stub your toe 491 times in one day, same person, Well, maybe we can talk about the 491st time maybe you should hold a grudge. That's not really what Jesus was teaching, but okay, fine. Now, for every other offense they do, you've got to give 490 times of forgiveness for all of that, too. But this is the significance of the number seven, and Jesus was using it to teach a very important lesson. But the number seven is a very significant number. The Father here sets a pattern that is to have continuing impact for the rest of history. 
from this point on, from this moment, the seventh day, the number seven is very important. And he set an example for us. What if he hadn't rested on the seventh day? What if he'd rested on the tenth day? Well, the number ten would be important. But see, God completed his work. He got to the end. There was no more work to do. He, he providentially knew this is the end of creation, so the seventh day is going to be important. You see, God's work was accomplished on the seventh day. It was completed. He completed the work on the sixth day, so the seventh day, he accomplished it. So whenever you look at the Bible and you see the number seven, remember, that is a number of completion, of finality. And I think also we should remember that Jesus' work on the cross is accomplished also. It is completed. I'd like to uh, turn to several different passages of Scripture today to help us bring out the truth that is contained here in these first three verses of Genesis 2. The first uh, scripture I want to read to you is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. And we'll read through to verse 14. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. If you brought your Bible, and I hope you did, because it's important to see things with your own eyes. Some people learn auditorially. Some people learn by holding things or doing it with their hands. Some people learn visually by seeing it. So it's good to have it visually there and to hear it. So I encourage you to bring your Bible. But in Hebrews 10, verse 10, we see, By the which will we, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oft times the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, talking about Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for the sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. It took one time. In the old system, the old covenant, they made sacrifices every day for people's sins. And if you had a specific sin that you did, you had to offer a sacrifice for that. But Jesus did it one time and completed the work. That's why he said on the cross, it's finished. It's done. Completely finished. He completed the work. It's kind of like, you know, to use a pop culture reference, he dropped the mic. Boom. There's nothing left to say. Bow. That's, that's what it is. That's what has happened. I mean, he, he said, look, it's all finished. Every sin you will ever, ever, ever commit has been paid for. Every, the, the, all the sins of the entire world, it's accomplished, complete. And that's something good to remember when we see seven the seventh day, God accomplished his work. It's completely done. Jesus on the cross also completely accomplished the work of salvation. He didn't partway do it or halfway do it or almost get there. He completely, absolutely paid for every single sin. 
Well, you say, preacher, so then it doesn't matter if I sin, right? I mean, it's all paid for. No, that's not what I'm saying. We have to receive the forgiveness for it to be effective in our own hearts. There are sins that have been paid for that will never be forgiven because the forgiveness will not be received by those sinners. We have to receive the grace of God in faith for it to become active and real. Otherwise, our sins are continue to be held against us. But Jesus' blood is not insufficient. It is absolutely sufficient to accomplish the work of salvation. So that's the significant seven. Then we see a sanctified Sabbath in verse 3. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Sanctification. What is sanctification? Well, friends, I just have to be honest. Sanctification, to make something holy, is a very deep and important doctrine in Scripture. And it deserves its own sermon. <laughs> I don't think we can really scratch the depth of sanctification in even one message. It's a very, very important doctrine in the Bible. But I would like to talk about it and touch on it the doctrine of sanctification. This is the first time in the Bible anything was ever sanctified. Now the best way, I think, to understand what, it, what sanctification is is to tell you about my basketball shoes. Everybody's going, huh? You weirdo. I, when I was growing up, I felt like I had a ton of shoes. I felt like almost I didn't want to tell people because, you know, it was girls that have tons of shoes. Guys aren't supposed to have tons of shoes. I felt like I did. I had, a, I, had shoes, I had shoes for church, and I had shoes to play in, and I had shoes to mow the grass in because your play shoes got messed up if you mowed the grass in those shoes. You had mowed the grass shoes, which were ratty, beat up, torn up, painting shoes. I had shoes, shoes to go to church in. Eventually, I started having a black pair and a brown pair, and so all these different kinds of things, but I had a special pair that were set aside for basketball. Growing up in Indiana, Hoosier boy, we played basketball all the time. If it's snowing outside, that's okay. I need to work on my jump shot. I mean, it's important. I got to get this down. We worked on our basketball almost as much as the guys in Kentucky did because they worked on it all the time and we needed to do a little more. You know, so this was important. And so I set aside a special pair of shoes. I went to the store when I ended up having my own money. I went to the store and I bought a pair of shoes specifically designed for basketball. They had a certain kind of sole that wouldn't mark up the floor. They had high tops to protect your ankles, keep your ankles uh, solid because I had kind of weak ankles and would turn them sometimes, you know, turn my, my shoes would turn and I'd hurt my ankle. But I had a special set of shoes set aside for that specific purpose. And I really didn't wear them for anything else. And if I thought there was a chance I might play basketball on this trip or, or later today, I'd take the shoes and put them in the car and I would make sure that I wore those shoes to play basketball in. You know, those shoes actually lasted me like 10 or 12 years. I mean, they lasted a long time because I only wore them to play ball. That's what sanctification is. It's to set aside to set apart something for a specific use or service. It's to set it apart. To be sanctified, to be holy, 
is to be set apart for a special purpose, for a special use. Uh, sort of like your Sunday clothes. You set aside, your, you have special, good, go-to-town Sunday clothes that you don't really wear except for special use, special occasions. In the Bible, we see this in the temple furnishings. In Exodus, you have all these different pieces of furniture that God made holy because they were set aside to be used in his service in the temple. So when God makes something holy, he is setting it apart for his own purpose, for his service. To be truly sanctified, to be truly holy, means that we are set apart for his service. Friends, you and I have been made a royal priesthood. We are made kings and priests before God. Christians are set apart. God set apart his people, Israel, to be a holy nation, it says in the Bible. He set apart his people, Israel, and we have been grafted into that covenant. And we are set apart as well as believers because God set apart Israel. And then when we're grafted in, now we are set apart too. We are sanctified, friends. We have been specially assigned for his service. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 is where it speaks of the royal priesthood. And you can look it up when you have a moment. 1 Peter 2, 9. He has set us apart. This is the first time in this passage of Scripture that God sanctifies anything. The word sanctified... In verse 3 is the word kadash. It means to consecrate, prepare, dedicate, be holy, be separate. In the Bible, when the word church is used in, in Greek, it's the Greek word ecclesia. And that Greek word means to call out. To call out. We are the called out ones. We are the ecclesia. We are called to be separate from the world. Not to be uh, secluded, but separate. You understand the difference? If you go to a monastery, you're secluded from the world. You're, you're sectioned off and you're protected from the world. If you're separate from the world, you live like Jesus did, who ate with sinners and talked to them and yet was not tainted by them. John Wesley and Matthew Henry both call this first sanctification the beginning of the kingdom of grace. I didn't have time to dig that out further, but I thought that was significant that both of them call... I, I've, I've not heard this concept of the kingdom of grace relating to holiness, but it sure was interesting. Both of them called this first sanctification the beginning of the kingdom of grace. This seventh day, the Sabbath, was the first thing God ever made holy. He made it special from that very moment. At the beginning of the world, He made that day holy. We don't even need the Ten Commandments to know that this is a very special day worthy of incredible honor. Incredible honor, both because of its antiquity the most ancient of all holy things is the Sabbath day. 
and also because of who made it holy, the Lord God in heaven. And what did he set apart this day for? So we've, we've laid this foundation of the significant seven and the sanctified Sabbath. What was it sanctified unto? It was sanctified unto righteous rest. The significant seven, a sanctified Sabbath, and we see a righteous rest in verse 2. On the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. God had accomplished everything there was to be done in creation, and so he rested. He didn't continue to work. He stopped working. Do you suppose maybe he sat down with Adam and Eve on the seventh day because Adam and Eve were both made on the sixth day? Maybe he sat down with them and maybe just talked to them, enjoyed relating to them. So here we have relationship showing up again. What did he do on the seventh day? Well, he, he rested. But what do you do when you rest? You still enjoy relationship with your loved ones. I don't believe God was silent to them on the seventh day. The word for rest in the Hebrew means, well, it is the word Shabbat. Really, these words are very much similar. Sabbath, Shabbat, and then Shabbat means to repose, desist, to cease, to cease. I think it's important to note that God did not rest out of weariness. He wasn't tired. It wasn't like, oh, making everything that exists in the whole universe is really exhausting. I've got to have a day of rest. He didn't do it because he had to. He chose to rest. First of all, to enjoy his creation. And secondly, to give us an example. He chose to rest. Friends, we should not drive and drive and drive until we have to rest. We should choose to rest. Later on in the Bible, God commanded Moses that his people should rest on the Sabbath day. And we won't take the time to look it up because we've seen it before, but Exodus chapter 20, verse 10 says, End all your labor. It says the Sabbath day is holy, remember it. In it, that is in the Sabbath day, thou shalt not do any work. Thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, not even your animals, are supposed to work on the Sabbath. Rest is so important to God that he made it one of the Ten Commandments. Resting is important to our Father. I'm grieved at times. To rest upon the Sabbath day is a commandment that is often simply ignored by many Christians. They just simply ignore it. I don't care. They don't, they don't think about it. They don't remember. Either they don't remember or they choose to ignore resting upon the Sabbath day. We have fallen as a, as a body of Christians, as a, 
a large grouping, we have fallen into the trap of treating God's holy day like any other day. That's a trap. I can't tell you how many times I've heard of people mowing the grass on a Sunday. You say, well, hey, preacher, that, that's kind of close to home. Hey, hey, back off. I'm sorry. To me, that's working. Now, some people relax by mowing the grass. Well, okay, if that's the way you rest, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, say, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not mow the grass on Sundays. There are times when you need to mow the grass on Sundays. I mean, your friends walk by and go, hey, the jungle's in Africa. We might cut your grass, maybe. Maybe you do. What about my friends that have been going to college and they study for a class on Sundays? And I want to tell them, you know, you had all week to study for this class. Now, I understand that, you know, that doesn't always balance out. Sometimes you got, you got a cram. Okay, your ox is in the ditch, but let's try to steer the ox away from the ditch. Let's, let's plan your studying so that you don't have to study on a Sunday. I think that's a little bit better. Maybe... This is one of the ones that I think that m most Christians don't think about. We go and we pay somebody else to work for us. But the scripture says in Exodus 20, Thou nor thy servant, nor thy, man, thy maidservant, nor thy manservant. Your servants should not be working for you on Sunday. I don't know that we should be paying other people to work for us. Now, there needs to be reasonable discernment applied to this principle. Jesus said, if your ox is in a ditch, you don't leave him there. You get him out. There's times when you have to travel on a Sunday. And you've you got to buy gasoline to keep on traveling. It's, it's just okay. There are times when your ox is in a ditch. But friends, we do not apply this principle as well as we should. We don't. We don't recognize and remember, wait a minute, the Sabbath day is a day of rest. We need to rest. We need to choose to rest, and we need to take steps and preparation to make sure we are making the day or remembering that it is holy. Look, maybe this applies to you different than it would apply to others. So I, I heard of a friend. In fact, I think, uh, I think I could say his name if I'm remembering the story right. But I, I remember hearing of a man who decided that he, he should not watch football on Sundays. Now, friends, my own conscience is free to watch football on Sundays. I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm totally fine with it. However, my friend was not. And he felt like he was not properly honoring the day because he got so wrapped up in the football game. So he felt the Lord telling him, you can't. And he didn't. And he chose to honor the Sabbath by not watching any football on a Sunday. Now, that sounds like a pretty difficult thing for most Americans to do. But he chose to do it. And that's because God was laying it upon his heart. So, I'm not going to tell you, you should never do this on Sunday. Never. Oh, you know, I'm not going to give you a list. I'm going to tell you what my own heart says and let the Lord apply it in your heart. Are you remembering the Sabbath day? Are you choosing to rest? Are you making it holy to God? Before your own heart, you need to be at peace. This is no little thing. This is no little thing. The Sabbath is the oldest 
instrument of God. If you, for some reason, you went to Israel and you had a tour guide who said, I know where the Ark of the Covenant is. You'd say, I want to see it. I would, because the Ark of the Covenant is not going to cause me to die by looking on it ever since God tore that curtain in half when Jesus died on the Mount of Calvary. It's not going to make me die, so I want to see it. Some people, there's rumors, oh, we know where it is, and all these things. Let's say some guy told you he knew where it was. And let's say you went to find it, and you saw the Ark of the Covenant right there, the cherubim, and the, you know, the Shekinah glory is gone from it, but there, there's where the Shekinah used to sit, right above the cherubim, covering their eyes. And then your tour guide takes out bologna sandwiches and starts making sandwiches on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Hey, this is a great table, isn't it? A picnic table. You'd say, what are you doing? What's the matter with you? This is a special instrument set apart for God's service and use. This is a holy relic. You should not be doing that. The Sabbath day is older than the Ark of the Covenant. The Sabbath day was set aside, the first thing sanctified by God for His use and service. It is not a little thing to disregard God's holy day. It was set apart to be a day of rest, a day when we remember our Father in heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ. We should remember to honor the Sabbath day. But even beyond that, friends, there is the significance of rest. This righteous rest we observe here in this passage gives us the first example of rest in the Bible. This topic of rest is throughout Scripture. This concept, it's a very important principle of rest emphasized throughout the Bible. To cease from our spiritual labor and simply rest upon the merit of Christ is the heart of the gospel. To rest is the heart of the gospel. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. You've heard this passage before, but I want you to look at it with your eyes. Or hear it with your ears, one of the two, or both. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says this, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. We are saved not by our labor, not through works, lest you say, hey, I saved myself. Look how righteous I am because I did all these righteous things. I was accounted worthy of salvation. No, it is by grace we are saved. We rest, cease from our own righteous efforts, and He is made unto us our Sabbath, our rest. We rest in Him, upon Him. How about in Matthew 11, verse 28? Flip back to the book of Matthew, and we'll see Jesus' words about rest. Verse 28 of Matthew 11. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
take my yoke upon you and learn of me for i am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light jesus provides rest unto our souls he when we cease from our labor we still need to be saved we must cease from our own righteousness and rest upon him he provides us a way to be to repose to desist from our own labor and to rest upon his righteousness instead of mine friends our walk with christ our everyday walk with christ is to be one of rest not only do we rest in salvation we rest every day in christ i'll ask you a question can we be saved by simply trying harder to be righteous can we find salvation from our sins redemption from hell a ticket to heaven by trying harder to be righteous no we cannot so let me ask you another question can we become more righteous as Christians by trying harder the answer is no I cannot try harder to be a good Christian and somehow achieve greater righteousness the only way we come into deeper and more fulfilling righteousness more de deeply into the image of Christ is by resting on his unfailing strength to provide that righteousness in me I can't just I'm gonna try harder to be righteous no you no you can't do it turn to Galatians chapter 2 flip back from the Gospels back to the Pauline epistles Galatians comes right before Ephesians the Galatians were trying to to get on God's good side by righteously fulfilling all the law look at Galatians 2 verse 16 listen here folks listen knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law we're in verse 16 of Galatians 2 I'm sorry knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by the faith of Jesus Christ even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified no flesh is justified through the works of the law skip on down to verse 20 I am crucified with Christ nevertheless I live yet not I he's saying my current life in Christ is not me but Christ liveth in me and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me I currently live by the faith of Christ the 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 life of Christ in me he doesn't say I live now by my own strong effort my own works to fulfill the righteousness of the law he says I live by God's grace he's saying it is the life of Jesus in me now I can't dwell in that righteous life without a righteous rest 
I have to cease from my own works and let the life of Jesus live in me instead, friends. Do you see this powerful truth? Do you see the significance? Turn the page. Turn to chapter 3, verse 1 of Galatians. I'll read a few more verses in case you haven't, you haven't got there. You're saying, oh, wait a minute, Pastor. Surely I, 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 I need to try harder. What about spiritual disciplines? I'm not saying spiritual disciplines aren't there, and I'm not saying it's hard. But you know why it's hard to practice spiritual disciplines? It's because I'm not trusting in Him. I'm not just leaning on Him to do it in me. How about chapter, or verse 1 of chapter 3? O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ has, hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only what I learn of you. He says, hey, it comes down to this. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Did you receive the Spirit of God by your own good, righteous works or by trusting and believing in the work of Jesus? Verse 3, Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? He said, You came to Christ in the Spirit, in faith. Are you now made perfect in Christ through the works of the flesh? No! He's saying this is a rhetorical question. Of course not! Having begun in the Spirit, are you made perfect in the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it yet be in vain? Verse 5 now. He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you. He's talking about powerful workings of God, doing God's work in the world. Doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith are the, the same are the children of Abraham. Abraham believed God. It wasn't because Abraham did good things that he was made righteous. It's because he believed God. He trusted in God, and it was the faith of Abraham that made him righteous. I'm going to tell you something. If you're trying hard to be righteous in God's eyes, God's eyes, you need to cease. If you're trying hard to be pleasing to God, you need to cease. You're going, hey, you are being heretical right now, Jared. Somebody get the stones and pick them up. Understand what I'm saying in context. If you're trying hard in your own strength to be good, stop. You need to rest. You need to rest not upon your own effort, but upon the, the power of Jesus Christ to live in me, to live in you. We have to, we have to stop this thinking, friends, that somehow we are coming to Christ in the Spirit, but then made perfect by the flesh in our own goodness. No, we are not. We are made good by Jesus Christ and is the life of Jesus in us that causes us to live a righteous life. But we have to cease from our own fleshly effort and rest upon the grace and power of God. That's what it means to rest. Even Abraham... When God cut the covenant with Abraham, 
It wasn't some action Abraham did. If you look at Genesis chapter 15, you will see that Abraham was asleep during the ceremony. God put Abraham to sleep. And Abraham had a go-between that, that was his representative before the father that cut the covenant with the father. Abraham was in covenant with God, but because he had a go-between. During that ceremony, Abraham was asleep. Genesis 15, go look it up if you want. Even faithful Abraham had a go-between. We have a go-between. We have a representative who has offered himself not only as the payment for our sins, but offered himself as the source of life that we live, as the source of righteousness for us day by day. And we need to rest upon his faithful promises, upon his faithfulness and his righteousness. We cease from, we desist from our working and we rest upon him. We trust him to be righteous for me. To cease from our own labors and trust upon the finished work of Christ, both for our salvation and the continuing work of sanctification, is the message and the heart of resting. And God set aside a special day from the foundation of the world. He set aside, sanctified a special day to remind us of the importance of rest. Not only physically resting from labor, but that is only a picture of the deeper and more significant rest that we have in Christ. That we rest and cease from our spiritual efforts to be good and rest instead upon the life of Jesus, not trusting my own flesh, but upon his power. He set aside this important day and then he led by example. <coughs> he rested and set us the example that we are to have physically and spiritually to rest from our labor and focus our hearts upon our relationship with God, upon our Savior, trusting His righteousness, not mine. What example will you set for those around you? Those that are watching your life. It might be your children. It might be your grandchildren. It might be your cousin. It might be your niece or nephew. It might be your father. It might be your mother. It might be your friend at work. It might be your coworker. What example are you setting of resting? Both honoring and remembering the Sabbath day as a day of rest, but also choosing to die to self. I am crucified with Christ, but I live Yet not I live, but it's the life of Christ in me, trusting His life. Don't tell your friends to try to be better people. Don't tell them, look, you need to work harder to be a Christian. No, you need to trust Jesus. He is our righteousness, friends. He is our righteousness, and we need to tell our friends about Him.
and say, He is the one that can make you different. He is the life that I'm trying to live. I'm surrendering my life to Him every day. I'm not any good. Not, don't look at me. Jared's not nice or good or righteous. It's Jesus that's righteous. Look at Him. He is the one that gives us a righteous life. Your friend says, Why, why in the world... Are you so good? How can you be like this? You say, it's not me, it's Jesus. Jesus is the life in me that makes me good, that makes me able to live a righteous life. I rest in Him. You see the significance of saying that? I rest upon Him. I'm trusting Him. I'm not trusting me or my own effort. I'm trusting Him. Not my own labor, not the things I do. I rest upon the Savior. I want us to sing a song in closing. I want us to sing together a song that is that, that powerfully illustrates this truth. And Dad is going to come and, and lead us and Nacy is going to play. And I want you to think about what these things mean. What are you trusting in and what example do you set for those around you? In your hymnal, at uh, 581, I think. We're going to sing the first and the last stanzas, all right? Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus Just to take Him at His word just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, Oh, for grace to trust Him more. I'm so glad I learned to trust Him. Precious Jesus, Savior, friend. And I know that Thou art with me. Will be with me to the end. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I prove him all. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace. To trust him more. Jesus is called the author and finisher of our faith. And if we will trust in him, he will finish the work that he began in us. He will see it through to the end. He is faithful. And we can trust in him. We can rest upon his promise that he said, I have forgiven your sins on the cross, and I now live in you. 
And the life that you now live, you live by the faith of the Son of God. Jesus Christ lives in us, friends. If we have chosen to receive His free gift of salvation, repenting of our sins, and trusting in Him to be our Savior. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. And this seventh day, God gave us the example of resting. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, would you give us grace to trust you more? Help us to learn what it means to rest, to know the significance and the power of resting in you. And I pray that every single Sabbath day we would remember that you sanctified and made holy the Sabbath day for a day of rest. The work was completed and the seventh was to be rested upon. Let us remember that. Help us to be reminded throughout this week that we are trusting in you every day and resting from our own righteousness and trusting in the righteousness of Christ. Lord God, I pray that you would just solidify this in our hearts and I pray that you would strengthen our uh, our surrender to you. Help us, Lord, to love one another, to love you more. As we know you deeper, help us to love each other more and to love you. Thank you, Lord, for all of your goodness, for your kindness and mercy. And we give all this to you in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.